How can an all-loving, righteous God send people to hell? Does the Bible teach that people go to hell? Should we get the hell out of here? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcast.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for downloading this message today. You're listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Thursday, September the 10th of 2009, and as always, I'm your host, Toby Logsdon, and welcome to uh, the first lesson in our next series. We just finished our Knowing God series last week uh, with God's Sovereignty. That was our last lesson. And so this week, uh, we're going to be starting a new series, and this isn't going to be nearly as long, I promise you. Uh, The name of this series is, Should We Get the Hell Out of Here? The question is, is hell biblical, and uh, further, is it moral? Uh, That's a good question, and that's something that we've all probably questioned. Uh, I know that I've questioned it a lot, and uh, that's actually why I started doing this study on it, because I did question it. So anyway, I hope this is something that will bless you guys and something that you guys will enjoy and also something that you guys can be equipped by because you will face people who believe in these other alternative options that we're going to be discussing and we'll get to that here in just a minute. But you know, when people propose those things, what do you say? When they propose other options for what God should do with the lost, what do you say? That's what we're going to be talking about in this study. So anyway, God bless you guys. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I hope you guys are doing well. Uh, We've got some great news for the church plant, and this is huge. I mean, this is huge, huge. Uh, There's a church here called New Heights Church, and it's one of the healthiest churches I've ever seen, honestly. Uh, You know, we've visited there several times. We've met with their leadership several times, and, you know, we're pursuing uh, this Hispanic leader who actually is a member of that church. Uh, to join us, to be joining us as we're uh, you know, going to be a multi-ethnic church, and we want multi-ethnic leadership uh, to even start the church. So anyway, we got to talking with the leaders of New Heights Church, and basically what they said to us was, why don't you come in and be small group leaders here, and you guys are free to take our people, you guys are free to use all of our resources, you guys are free to use our office space, you guys are free to use, they've got this big warehouse space, uh, and they said we can use that on Sundays for free. And they want no credit for it. They don't want to have like their, their hand in the pot at all. We'll still be Mosaic Church of Arkansas Northwest uh, campus, but uh, these guys are basically giving us this huge door to walk through. Man, uh, praise the Lord for that. This is just such an answer for uh, such an answer to prayer. We've been praying for something like this for uh, you know almost a year now since we moved here uh, about eleven months ago. So praise the Lord. And you know, if you, any of you guys want to support what we're doing here, we're planting the first multi-ethnic church in the history of Northwest Arkansas. And one, of, by the way, one of the cool things that the pastoral staff said to us, the senior pastor, he said, you know, considering that you guys want to be multi-ethnic and we're not, even though we should be, we think that God brought you guys to us to help us as much as for us to help you. So anyway, if you guys want to uh, help us get this church started, if you want to support us financially, you can do so by making out a tax-deductible donation, a check or money order to Mosaic Church, and you can send it to P.O. Box 6804, Springdale, Arkansas, 72763. 
That would be a huge blessing to us. We definitely need financial support. We've got a huge project ahead of us, and uh, any help that we can get would be just greatly appreciated. So anyway, uh, we've got a lot of material to cover today, so let's go ahead and get started with, uh, with that with a quick word of prayer. Father God, our desire is to know you and to make you known. We want to worship you, Lord, with our hearts, with our minds, with all of our souls and all of our strength, Lord. But it's our mind that sometimes creates a problem, Lord, because we question And today, Lord, we're uh, addressing a topic that gets questioned a lot and which is very controversial. And so, Lord, I just pray that you'll instruct us and that you'll lead us into truth for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's be perfectly honest about something for a moment here. The doctrine of hell is a scary doctrine, and it's one that really nobody likes to talk about. You know, I know that I personally hated the doctrine of hell as a young adult, because I had a great amount of difficulty reconciling the idea of this everlasting hell with my understanding of who God is and the attributes that I thought God was characterized by. How could a God who claims to be and who thus personifies the essence of love, uh, according to 1 John 5, verse 3, how could he be that kind of God who is love if he sends people to hell just because they don't believe in him? I mean, what about the guy in the deep jungles of Africa who's never heard of Jesus. And I know that I'm not alone in asking that question, which was a question that I've asked, you know, in the past. I did ask. In fact, this very objection, which I once had, is one of the most common objections to the Christian faith that we face. As Christian authors J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig have observed, this question can actually be traced back to when, quote, Voltaire, taunted the Christians of his day with the prospect of millions of Chinese doomed to hell for not having believed in Christ when they had not so much as even heard of Christ, end quote. And as uh, noted skeptic and philosopher Walter Kaufman noted, the doctrine of hell, quote, defies superhuman cruelty. I mean, if we think that Hitler was bad for the things that he did and for the torment that he put the Jews through, I mean, those things were only temporal. The traditional view of hell, on the other hand, well, that's forever. That's eternal. So from this perspective, one might conclude that Hitler was more righteous than God. No, perish the thought. You know, there's a uh, there's certainly a difficulty in reconciling the traditional view of hell, which affirms that hell is both eternal and conscious, and which, in essence, asserts that hell is properly understood as involving the torment and uh, the banishment of the unsaved individuals to a place outside of heaven. So it's hard to reconcile uh, that view of hell with a God who allegedly loves the world so much that he became a man for the sake of taking the sins of those who believe in him upon himself and thus reconciling believers to God. You know, maybe that's why Christians don't like to talk about the doctrine of hell. Well, as a seminary student, uh, I worked in a bank, and one of the customers who would regularly come in to make deposits and conduct, you know, whatever kind of business was a pastor from the church, which was across the street from the bank. And he'd regularly ask me, you know, how I was doing in school or what projects I would be working on that semester. Well, one of those times when he asked what papers I had that particular semester, I told him that I was writing about hell. Wow, he said, couldn't you pick a happier topic to write about, like God's love? And, you know, I understood where he was coming from. Uh, As a student of apologetics, however, you know, I've always questioned absolutely everything. I mean, I was a punk rocker when I was in high school because I questioned everything. 
That's actually how I became a Christian. But, you know, that's a story for another time. One of the things that I've forced to do, though, one of the things I've forced myself to question repeatedly is the doctrine of hell. You know, I always had difficulty resolving some of the alleged inconsistencies and contradictions with this doctrine, so I dove into the subject head first. You know, I started reading everything I could on the subject, and I came to realize that there are actually plenty of Christians out there who have struggled with the same issue and who have actually ended up rejecting the traditional view of hell. And I started realizing that a lot of Christian writers and thinkers have completely rejected the traditional view of hell altogether, and that the doctrine isn't as widely accepted anymore as I had previously thought. John Walvoord wrote that, quote, the concept of hell as eternal punishment has long been caricatured as a relic of the Dark Ages. For many, the proper doctrine is that of a loving God who will not demand everlasting retribution. End quote. And so it became clear to me that the doctrine of hell wasn't just a stumbling block for me, and it wasn't just a stumbling block for atheists or skeptics. It's a stumbling block for a lot of Christians. And, you know, in this day and age of political correctness in which, uh, you know, political correctness and tolerance are regarded as the highest of all virtues, it's very likely that the doctrine of hell is, in fact, a stumbling block for the majority of Christians, not just some, but for the majority. You know, we've all heard some version of the question, what about the guy in the middle of Africa who's never heard of Jesus? So it's obvious that the traditional view of hell presents a lot of difficulties, but Here's the question. What assumptions do those difficulties come from? In other words, why do we have difficulty reconciling the idea of an eternal and conscious hell with God's character? Why is that so hard for us to reconcile? Well, there are two primary attributes of God which get called into the question when we're talking about this issue. First, his omnibenevolence, that is, his all-loving nature, and secondly, his righteousness. An all-loving God would desire to save all people, and a God who's perfectly righteous and just, by his very nature, wouldn't be capable of doing anything which is unjust. But the idea of people spending eternity in hell appears to be neither loving nor just, and so therein lies our dilemma. However, if God is neither omnibenevolent nor just, then the dilemma would be resolved, right? And so thus our first responsibility here is to determine whether the God of the Bible is both omnibenevolent, all-loving, and perfectly just. Both of those attributes must be established, because if God is only one of those things, but not both, the dilemma would be resolved. If God's just, but not all-loving, you know, we could simply assume that God both could and would send people to an eternal and conscious hell because he just doesn't love them. And in fact, this is one way that strong Calvinists such as John Piper have resolved this dilemma. Piper asserted in a sermon that, quote, Jesus doesn't love everybody the same way. And the way he loves his sheep and his disciples and his children is different from the way he loves those who reject him, end quote. That's John Piper in the sermon called He Knew What Was in Man, and that sermon was given on January 11th of this year, 2009. Now, the problem with this is that Scripture clearly teaches that, A, first of all, we're not born as children of God. Uh, we're born as children of wrath and disobedience. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. B, for this to be true, God's love for us must change. And C, God doesn't change. That's according to Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, James chapter 1, verse 17, and there are some other verses that, uh, that repeat the same thing. And so thus, God necessarily 
must love everyone the same if he loves at all. So, conversely, if God loves all, but is unjust, if that could be logically feasible, then we could dismiss this dilemma by assuming that God loves people, but is somehow simultaneously capable of arbitrarily choosing to save some, but not others. And of course, this is the position that's implied by most strong Calvinists, who assert that God arbitrarily predestines some, you know, the elect for heaven, and those who aren't among the elect are predestined for hell from all eternity. This belief is actually at the very root of the Calvinist doctrine of unconditional election. So the question is, is God both unchangeably omnibenevolent and righteous? Well, let's address the question, is God all-loving, first of all? And as we've already noted, the Bible does indeed teach that God, by his very nature, is love. That's 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. It could be argued that the most famous verse of the Bible, thanks to modern-day sports, because you see the banners out there hanging you know, at the football games or whatever, is John chapter 3, verse 16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. In Paul's epistle to Titus, he wrote, quote, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. That's from Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But wait a minute, is Paul saying here that God only loves those whom he saves? Is he saying that he loves some people differently? Absolutely not. You know, if that had been Paul's intent, Paul would have written, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for the elect appeared, or for the saved, or, you know, whatever, he saved us. But no, you know, God has a love for all of humanity. Nobody falls outside of the boundaries of his undying and infinite love, according to this verse. And by the way, everything that God uh, experiences must be infinite, because he, in his essence, is infinite. Further, Jesus taught his followers, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. That's from Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 44 and 46. Now, this is agape love that Jesus is talking about here. And that's the same type of love that he tells us to have for God. In Mark chapter 12, verse 30, for example, as fallen sinners, the default position of humanity is that of an enemy of God, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 10. God wouldn't command us to do something that he himself does not do. As Paul writes, uh, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. And that makes it clear that we're to follow the example set by God. And in this case, he sets an example of loving our enemies for us to follow. And further, finally, as a God who so loves the world, God desires to save the world from the penalty of sin. Peter wrote that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. So if God loved some but not others, or some more than others, then what Peter wrote here would be completely false. And thus, it's evident that contrary to the strong Calvinist position, God is indeed all-loving. But is God righteous? That's our next question. Well, as Christian author and apologist Norman Geisler writes, uh, when the term righteous is used in reference to God, quote, it refers to the intrinsic characteristic of God, wherein he is absolutely just or right and is the ultimate standard 
of justness and rightness, end quote. In the Bible, we find plenty of support for this. The psalmist tells us that, quote, the ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. That's Psalm 19.9. Zephaniah tells us that the Lord is righteous. He will do no injustice. That's from chapter 3, verse 5. Paul writes that his righteousness endures forever. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9. And even Pharaoh who was never a believer. Even Pharaoh proclaimed, The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. That's Exodus chapter 9, verse 27. The Israelites likewise proclaimed in their song, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. And it doesn't get any clearer than that, right? I mean, Scripture clearly affirms the righteousness of God. But we can inductively determine through logic and reasoning that God is righteous and well. In fact, that's how C.S. Lewis became a Christian. As he wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, he wrote, quote, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? End quote. And so thus it's evident in both natural revelation, that is logic, uh, and special revelation, scripture, that God is indeed righteous. So the question then is, what is a perfectly righteous, all-loving God supposed to do? with the unsaved. Well, theologian uh, Clark Pinnock writes that the view that the wicked must suffer both eternally and consciously for their rejection of God's plan of salvation, quote, has been a stumbling block for believers and an effective weapon in the hands of skeptics for use against the faith, end quote. And further, regarding the fact that even adherents of the traditional view of hell are apparently shy about the reality of this everlasting view of hell. Pinnock writes that, quote, given the silence attending the traditional view today, even among its supporters, the whole idea of hell may be about to disappear unless a better interpretation can be offered about its nature, end quote. So maybe a better question to start with would be whether or not we can just dismiss the doctrine of hell outright because we don't like the way it sounds or we don't like the way it feels emotionally. Well, absolutely not. We can't dismiss something for those reasons. Uh, Truth isn't determined by whether something feels good or not. You know, if I'm in a fist fight with somebody, uh, it doesn't feel good to have my face punched, but that wouldn't change the fact that the person I would, you know, theoretically be fighting with, uh, punched me in the face. It doesn't feel good when a loved one dies, but the fact that it doesn't feel good doesn't bring that person back from the dead. I mean, the truth can sometimes hurt, either physically or emotionally. If we were to dismiss a doctrine like hell just because we don't like how it feels, the implication would be that we can dismiss anything we want, anything that doesn't feel good. And if this is the case, then doctrine is negotiable at best, or it's arbitrary at worst. I mean, let's be honest. If we're able to negotiate doctrines based on how they make us feel, then Christianity is useless because it's just another human ideology put into practice, and we can make it consist of whatever we want, whatever we determine to be true. You know, this would allow us to make God in our image, which is the most insulting and defiling thing you can do to a God who is perfectly holy. And in fact, one of the core doctrines of Christianity is the sinful state of humanity. You know, it doesn't feel good to realize how sinful we naturally are. But truth isn't determined by what does or doesn't feel good. And so thus, there's no question 
that we absolutely can't reject the traditional view of hell just because it doesn't appeal to us. Uh, it would be sufficient to point to the sovereignty of God and simply be reminded that if God created uh, hell, if he revealed a doctrine of hell with which we're uncomfortable, that we have to accept it as true anyway, regardless of how revolting the idea may seem to some people. You know, instead, maybe what we can do is question the morality of what God could possibly do with the lost. You know, we know that God is perfectly righteous and all-loving, so perhaps a better angle to come from when questioning how such a God could possibly create an eternal hell for the unsaved to consciously experience torment in would be to examine the options that an omnibenevolent, righteous God has in regards to the lost. In other words, is God's omnibenevolent and perfectly just character best reconciled with the notion of a hell which consists of everlasting and conscious torment? Or could there have been a morally superior alternative option that God could choose? Maybe the dilemma which seems to arise from the traditional view of hell could be resolved by simply examining the options that God could have in regards to the lost. That is, those who are not saved and thus who don't go to heaven. I mean, obviously, there's nothing logically necessary that would cause God to create a place called hell where, uh, you know, where the lost would suffer and torment for eternity. Logically speaking, God has to do something with the lost. Uh, the question is, what? So the moral issue, then, is twofold. First of all, whether or not hell is morally necessary, and second, whether or not the traditional view of hell is morally superior to the alternative options that God could choose, or if one of those alternatives would have been morally superior. Further, it can't be denied that to object to a doctrine on a scriptural basis is valid, you know, appealing to an emotional basis isn't necessarily valid, but appealing to a scriptural basis is valid. And so therefore, part of our study here will consist of examining what scripture teaches regarding hell and whether or not the descriptions of hell as contained in scripture are in line with what is determined to be the morally best option that God could have chosen in dealing with the lost. But the majority of this study will consist of looking at the logical alternative possibilities. What could an all-powerful, all-loving, all-just God do if he could just start from scratch and try to determine what to do with those who reject him. Logically, there are at least seven uh, seemingly viable options that God could choose pertaining to the unsaved. First, God, having exhaustive foreknowledge of all future things, both real and potential, could have refrained from creating any person who would, in due time, have gone to hell. Secondly, God could have abstained from creating any hell and simply allowed anyone and everyone into heaven with or without their personal consent. That's universalism. Third, God could have created a place where the souls of the lost would be kept until they were willing to reform and submit to him. Fourth, God could have decided to annihilate those who are lost, annihilationism. Uh, fifth, God could have created hell as a place where lost souls would go for maybe a given amount of time, a certain amount of time, uh, after which if the person would uh, would not be willing to be reformed, then they would be annihilated. That would be uh, kind of a purgatory view, maybe a little bit of a twist on it. Sixth, God could have chosen to have no hell, but rather to reincarnate those who are lost. Seventh, and finally, 
God could have designated hell to be a place where the lost can be eternally separated from God. That's the traditional view. So each of these options deserves consideration in an effort to determine which of these options would have been morally superior. So with each lesson that we do on these various options, we'll examine and consider each option philosophically, morally, and, when necessary, or where support appears to exist, scripturally. So while few Christians would argue against the fact that doctrine must be determined by what the Bible reveals as being true, since truth is determined by the fact that something either does or does not correspond with reality, this study will probably shock you. Because we're about to see, through this study, that hell is actually highly moral in comparison with the other logical options, and that as such, it's exactly what we would expect from a God who is all-loving and perfectly righteous and just in all of his ways. Now, does that mean that I want anybody to actually go to hell? Perish the thought. Never. I don't want anybody to go to hell. But does the doctrine of hell reflect poorly on God? Should we get the hell out of here? Absolutely not. But I would encourage you to stick around through this study and find out why we should. Hopefully this will be a lot of fun for you guys. It's going to be a lot of fun for me. And I'm really looking forward to uh, to getting this study going. So anyway, God bless you guys, and thank you so much for joining us today. Keep growing closer to Jesus. This message has been brought to you by Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries. For those of you who don't listen regularly, we hope that this lesson has been a blessing to you, and we ask nothing further of you. But for those of you who consider our ministry at BibleStudyPodcast.org to be a regular source of teaching and instruction for you, we want to thank you for your faithfulness to participate financially in supporting our ministry. We do rely on your support to keep us growing and going. If you're a regular listener and would like to support our ministry, you can go to BibleStudyPodcast.org and make a tax-deductible donation through PayPal on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Or you can mail a tax-deductible donation to Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, P.O. Box 6804, Springdale, Arkansas, 72763. God bless you, and thank you again for your financial support. Keep growing closer to Jesus. Jesus.